Abusers thrive off of a victim narrative. People True. who thrive on a victim narrative inevitably end up exploiting and abusing the compassion of other people. They start off seducing people through their victim narrative, saying, woe is me, I need you to rescue, rescue me and save me. You're the only person who understands me in the entire world. And then they start blaming you and criticizing and nagging and badgering and saying everything that is wrong in my life, the reason I am depressed and sad is you. They turn their partner into their victim of their manipulative abuse. So people who thrive off of a victim narrative inevitably be become abusive, exploitive partners. This is episode number 483 with Rima Zaman, Finding Love After Emotional Abuse. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. And if you would like some support on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. It's filled with 30 tips and stories and exercises, all designed to help you step more fully into your power, into your value. And it's not just for people who are looking for love, it's people who are looking to love themselves a little bit more. So you can find it on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. And this week's tip from the book is called uh, Do Not Settle. It's step number 13. And I think that's really appropriate for today's episode because we often settle for relationships that don't really fill us up. They don't help us thrive in life. And it's really important not to give up hope that your person is out there. And it's not just about looking for the right person. It's about also being the right person. And I can speak from my own experience that when I got married at 28, I thought I had reached the limit of all the people in the world to date. I thought I had exhausted every man in New York City and that the man I was marrying was the best fit for me. And in some ways, he was a good fit for who I was then. But he certainly was not the last person. My ovaries were not going to dry up in a year. <laughs> and all the things that I was afraid of did not happen. So I encourage you not to settle in any part of your life, but really to go for what you really want. And before I bring Rima on, I would invite, I would like to invite you to join our Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. And it is a group for people who want to grow and thrive on their journey to lasting love. It is a positive place for support, which is highly unusual in these kinds of groups because most of them are not monitored. They are just a place to vent and talk about how horrible life and dating is. We are really interested in helping you move forward. So join us at your last first date. And now for my guest, Rima Zaman is an award-winning author, screenwriter, and speaker. She's the author of the memoir, I Am Yours, the forthcoming dystopian novels, Paramita and Motherland. Did I pronounce those right? You did. Okay, good. Uh, the anthology, Love, Sex, and creator of the TV show, Snap. She's been a guest on Dear Sugars and Vice News, and her essays have been published in Vogue, The Guardian, Salon, lots of amazing publications. And she was born in Bangladesh and she was raised in Thailand. She now lives in Portland, Oregon with her beautiful rescue chihuahua, Fia the Fierce, who I've met already. 
Thea, Thea was right there on your lap, Rima. So welcome, welcome, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's such an honor to be here. I'm so excited to speak with you. I discovered you one time I was scrolling through Facebook and I think it was, was it Andy Lamott's son? Is that who's yes, son who interviewed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like going down one of those social media holes where I was like, oh, Sam, Sam's interesting. Oh, he has a podcast. Oh, you were on his podcast. <laughs> and he's like talking about how wonderful you were. And then I come to your video and you're speaking about the trauma you suffered in your marriage. And I just felt this connection. So I wrote to you and I'm like, oh my God, I'm in love with you. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that this worked out. And I would love for you to share a little bit about the what was in that video and, and what your what was your your past relationship um, so that people can understand where you came from. I am 38 now. And when I was in my mid-20s, I got married very quickly. Uh, to a man I had only really known for six months at that time. And it wasn't even, like, we didn't have a wedding or anything. We met in the summer of June, 2009. So yeah, June, 2009. And at that point, so like you, like you said, I was born in Bangladesh and raised in Thailand. And I graduated from um, the International School of Bangkok and immigrated to the United States as a student. I went to Skidmore College, which is in upstate New York, and I studied gender studies and theater. I had a double major with a minor in uh, religion. And I was a card-carrying feminist. My concentration in my gender studies program was the history of violence and abuse against women and the psychology of abusers. And I knew all the things and I still managed to walk straight into an emotionally abusive relationship that, um, you know, that operated around control and power and manipulation because uh, it felt familiar to um, different things I had witnessed growing up. I had, you know, grown up around a lot of patriarchal marriages and dynamics and some, and the thing is, even though the mind, the brain knows all the academics and scholarly papers, and you've written all these papers, you, um, I think that first critical adult relationship is about us going through our pain points and wounds that we've carried in from childhood and teenagehood and creating messes from there and then working through it. And so um, I met this very charismatic man in the summer of 2009. He, um, enveloped me in this really possessive love. And for me, uh, through Hollywood and my, and everything I had um, witnessed in my childhood, I thought possessive, controlling love from a man was like the definition of authentic love. And um, he would demand to know everything about my schedule and my financial, you know, choices and what I was wearing and doing and I just thought you know him being possessive is because someone loves you and like I mentioned I'd been in the states as a student first and I had uh, straight out of college I was um, represented by modeling and acting agents and so they had sponsored my consequent visas I had an artist visa when I met the man who is now my ex-husband and I was about to 
uh, go through the, the next process of renewing my artist visa for another year and giving my lawyers, you know, five grand. And the guy I was dating said, you know what, how about um, you give me that money and we put it into this house that I want to build us for our beautiful, bright life and future together. And let's just get hitched. And I, I will sponsor your green card through marriage. And because I want to be the reason why you're here. And I fell for it. And I thought it was the most romantic proposition. And I stepped right into a binding contract where my ability to live and work in the United States now became contingent on this man. And lo and behold, uh, he bought a, um, like a ramshackled half burnt barn in upstate New York. And we first lived, you know, we, we got married in January, 2010. And then we moved into a houseboat, not sorry, a sailboat. And we stayed on the ice in New Jersey in a sailboat for about a few months. Then we moved into his VW van, which was parked outside of the construction site. And then we moved into a corner of the construction site. And that was the, the entire duration of our relationship was on, was never, we were never on solid ground, which is a metaphor and a and a reality, a literal, we were never on solid ground. And everything I earned, because I'd given up my apartment and all of my money just was put into his pockets and everything I earned was going, through, going to the barn and the labor used to build the barn. And he had two cars and two um, storage units. And I was just giving him all of my money. And after a while, I realized like everything that I was working and giving money toward, nothing had my name on it. I had seamlessly orchestrated a life where I had no ownership or agency or voice over anything. And, um, and you know this from like being in New York, once you give up your apartment and you give up your security deposit plus the rent, to accrue that back, that's like $10,000, like $5,000 to $10,000 to get a new place to live. But all of my money, I was just stifling it back, just siphoning it back into his pockets. He was getting more and more controlling and mean. Um, and I couldn't find my way out. And after a while, the gaslighting started where he would say really awful things to me and threaten me with, he knew that my my deepest need in a relationship is belonging. So what manipulators do is, and abusive manipulators, what they do is they identify your core wounds or your core fears, as well as the character traits that you value most in yourself and other people. And they start to attack you exactly where you are most sensitive. So for instance, he knew that being generous and caring uh, and responsible with my loved ones are some of the qualities I revere most in other people and certainly in myself. I'm the oldest of four kids and taking care of other people and being selfless in my generosity and abundant in my generosity is pivotal to who I am and what I value. And so he would start to say, you are being so ungenerous. You're being so selfish. You never give me any time or affection. So this way, even though I had started falling out of love with him because of his unkindness, 
I was trapped because I started running in circles, overperforming and giving, giving, giving more in order to prove my value to him. And that's a tactic that manipulative abusers use. They will, they will wound you exactly where it hurts most. Another thing, because he knew that my deepest relationship need is belonging, he would constantly threaten me with kicking me out. And he would say that, well, it's not like I love you or this is a real marriage. You're my wife for greensies, not for realsies. And so again, even though I had stopped having true respect and admiration for him, I was so attached to him through my need to prove him wrong and to get his uh, approval and his sense of belonging. Every time he threatened me, I would work harder to, to give him more love, to prove my, work, my value. And the great thing about this is that through this process, I start, and he started telling me that, um, again, to attack me exactly where it would hurt more, most in terms of belonging, he started saying that because you don't give me enough as a woman, I'm going to, I'm just going to start dating other women and they'll be like sister wives. And again, I don't have any jealousy issues. I am not at all competitive with other women. I've never felt the need to be jealous or competitive. I know my value when I'm in a clear headed space and environment, but in the depths of that unkind relationship and emotionally abusive relationship, I just took that as more invitation to work harder and overperform and be the world's most perfect partner I could possibly be. And he knew that's exactly how he would distract me more. Anyway, so the golden, the gold, not just silver lining, but the golden lining through all of this is I started writing. And, for, and I started keeping in a digital journal of every day what was happening to me and to first analyze my psychology as well as his psychology because I needed to figure out how did I get myself here? Here I am, a seemingly intelligent woman who is a women's studies major who had studied the history of emotional violence against women. I know all the things, but how did I get myself here? How did I co-create this? Um, and I started to un uh, uncover and unpack all of the things that had happened to me in my childhood and teenage years. And I started to look at his psychology and gain more insight into the mechanics of an abuser, because I realized that if I were to ever initiate a divorce, he would become so maniacal and he would tell me like well if you try to get a divorce from me I'm just going to say you committed immigration fraud and I knew that the only way to get him to take his hands off of me was for him to kick me out of the relationship and I was also so trapped for the longest time thinking I was somehow to blame for his unhappiness. That if I could only figure out the magical combination of actions and words that I need to give him to help him feel better, to help him be less depressed and therefore so mean and controlling, that I would be his ticket to happiness because I was his ticket to sorrow. Like I was so trapped in that mentality. And so writing helped clarify and free me from all of that. And I realized uh, abusers thrive on three things, fear, 
sadness and the feeling of dominance. And so I decided, and that's why they do the things they do to us because they thrive off of that power. And so I decided to starve him of the three things he wanted most from me. So anytime he would try to engage in an argument and yet another cyclical argument that would reduce me to tears and hysterical begging, like, please don't go after sister wise. We can, we can get through anything together. You're just going through a hard time. I just stopped engaging. I stopped giving him my anger. I stopped giving him my sorrow and I stopped giving him any satisfaction of having dominance over me. And I just disengaged and I would just tell him do whatever it is you need to do. Just leave me alone. Do whatever it is you need to do. Just leave me alone. And which would only make him more furious, but after a few months of that, it worked. And one day I was babysitting in New York City and he called me up and we had a two and a half minute conversation. And he said, I don't feel like doing this anymore. And I had a backpack with two sets of clothes. I had $60 that I was going to make that day because I had just given him all my monthly wages from the month before. And I had my laptop and the pages I had been writing in secret, which means I had my voice, my freedom, my health, and I filled with gratitude, relief, and release because he had given me my freedom. And I knew that I had everything I needed to make a new life. And so I realized that if those initial pages written in secret in my laptop had given me the clarity, confidence, and courage I needed to speak back to him and to hold my ground. If I develop those pages into a larger book, perhaps they could be of service to someone else in their journey. So I I left New York on a one-way plane ticket to Portland, Oregon, because my mom and my stepdad live here. And I asked to live with them for a year while I developed those initial pages into a full-length book manuscript. And so I did that. And I worked at kinder care, which is a daycare center. I worked at Whole Foods as a cashier. I worked as a crossing guard at an elementary school. I worked as as a reading aide at that elementary school. And I did everything I needed to do. I got my own apartment after that first year with my folks. I, um, I still remember so vividly sending query letters to different literary agents while I was like in my uniform at kinder care during my lunch break. And I... Uh, I wanted to live with my parents because witnessing my mom uh, be so loved and cared for by a loving man, I knew that was critical to my healing. And I knew that was, it would give me the tools to be like, that's what I'm, that's what I deserve too. If my mom has that, that's what I deserve as well. And, um, it was perfect. It was like, it was the perfect situation in which to heal and write that book, which is the book you referenced. I am yours. So um, yeah, I was kinder care sending out query letters. I made a, a list of 25 literary agents that I wanted to reach out to. And I went from the bottom up. So I, I would send the first draft of the manuscript to my, you know, to 21 to 25, my top 21 to 25. I would use their feedback to improve the next draft. I did that four times. And then I sent my like draft four to my number one choice and literary agent. And then she signed me. 
And then from there, she told me, okay, so while we edit it in-house before sending it out to prospective publishers, I want you to start doing, uh, getting your essays published. And I said, cool, awesome. <laughs> so she sent me a list of places she wanted me to get published. And I went, I went at it. And then I started training myself to become a speaker. And what I did was I just, you know, like voraciously consumed as much video and audio content on women I admire out in the world. And I watched every single interview by Cheryl Strait and Lydia Yuknovich and Michelle Obama and Oprah and everyone. And I just came up with my talking points and rehearsed those. And then I started cold calling and cold emailing universities and colleges and conferences and saying, I have a unique way to tell this story and to offer tools that may serve someone else in their similar journey. This is why you need to hire me. <laughs> and it worked. And then, you know, all of the, so when you asked, when you said, like, I saw a video, I'm like, I'm so sorry, Sandy, <laughs> one, because there's an obnoxious amount of content <laughs> talking out there in the world. And that was, um, and during that time, Another critical thing I did is I stopped dating. In the summer of 2015, June 25th, I received what I can only call like a, a very strong call to action. And I heard a clear voice tell me that the man I'm supposed to be with was presently occupied and that I should give him five years to become ready to meet me. And I should use those five years to become the woman I've always wanted to become and to become the woman he will need me to be by the time we meet. And so I dutifully listened to that message. There's, a, there's about four called, very clear calls to actions that I've received in the course of my life. One was write this book, even though you've never written a single you know, professional essay or book in your life leave acting and modeling behind and try your hand at writing books. That was the first one. The second one was about take five years of total um, solo time and focus on yourself and your career. Don't even dabble in any kind of online dating or texting or flirting or anything. I used to devote so much of my creative energy and time and love and effort on relationships you know, and instead I was just pouring all of that time, labor and love into myself. And I, that's why my career and I began to grow rapidly. I was my only priority after a lifetime of like, you know, taking care of a community. Um, and so I did that for five years and everything was a seamless explosion, which is what my mom calls it. <laughs> and then in, uh, you know, the book was published in 2019, February 2019. It's called I Am Yours. And it was so beautiful. I got to, my book tour kept on being extended. And I ended up traveling for about seven months of that whole year. And I got to meet thousands of people who had found me through Cheryl Strait's podcast, Dear Sugars. And um, that episode is called emo Emotional Abuse as well. And so I met all these people who had been following my, my voice and my work for years. I um, got to meet thousands of kindred souls and hear their stories. And it was the most rewarding experience. And um, then I returned home and we were in 2020 and we entered the pandemic. 
And that's when all of my speaking engagements were canceled and all of my teaching engagements were canceled. And so I realized, gosh, I guess I can have an emotional breakdown or I can do what I've done before, what I did before, which is from total financial destitution, just come up with a new book. And so I wrote Paramita, the dystopian novel that you referenced. And Paramita means perfection in Sanskrit. And Paramita, half of it is set in 2020 in a pandemic world. And half of it is set in, in 2100 in a post-pandemic world where the nation formerly known as the United States is now called Paramita. And it is a matriarchy ruled by two of the scientists who discovered the life-saving, world-saving vaccine back in 2020. These two women, when they came into unfathomable power, they decided to use their, the science and power in their hands to create a new world. And that's Paramita. Wow. So much, so much to say. <laughs> and so after I finished writing that, I finished writing, I started it in, in April and I finished writing Paramita in, in October. Then I did a read through of it and my main character, Gaia, who's the, the matriarch and scientist, she's a mother of two kids. And I, when I was doing my read through and doing my editing process, I always learned so much about myself that I don't know going in, which, which seems very obvious when you're writing a memoir, but it's the same, it applies to novels as well. And I, ask myself, why do I feel so compelled to look through, to look at the world through the eyes and voice of a mother? And I realized, oh, Rima, it's time. You are ready to open yourself back up to the prospect of partnership and one day motherhood. And um, I was like, well, I can't really go find my person in a pandemic, <laughs> um, but I guess I can take one step forward in creating this next, next stage of my life, I can adopt our family puppy. And so I uh, went online and I found Fia um, and I adopted her and then she melted all of my walls and I downloaded a dating app and that's when I met my partner last December. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. I love so many aspects of your story and I want to kind thank of you. go through, thank you for sharing all of it. I'm sure so many people will relate as they have in the past. Um, I, by the way, I did check Sam Lamott's um, post was from The Revelist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just so you know <laughs> where I found awesome. you. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, what's coming up for me is this overperformer in you is mm -hmm. going to show up no matter what. So she's going to show up 
whether it's for for really building and rebuilding after this relationship dissolved and also mm-hmm. in the process of how you got out of this relationship was so clever and self-awareness um, came into play because you had to, you were analyzing yourself, you were analyzing him, you were figuring out how to get into his psychology, which I think what what most people miss is that part. You know, they keep trying like you did. And I did that for a long time. Try, mm-hmm. try, try. And if I say things in a different way, then that person's going to hear me and somehow change. And that doesn't work. And uh, but the the um, the ability to not give energy to an abuser is is something that really takes takes a lot of self-control and self-awareness and it's like you're not feeding the fire and Mm -hmm. I think people miss that point unless they really get get clear on how the psychology of these kinds of people work because it's not Mm -hmm. like how you work it's not like your brain is not going there your brain is like oh well if we say things in the right way then this person is going to be kinder (laughs) that's right not true right you had nothing when you left. And I think a lot of people are so afraid to leave because of whatever they're holding onto in the relationship. Um, I, I won't know how to rebuild. Um, this is going to happen, this catastrophe, that catastrophe. Mm-hmm. I know for myself and my marriage, I was worried about my children and what would happen to them. I have friends who are afraid to leave a marriage I don't even know why, because it's, their kids are grown. There is abuse, but I think she's just as abusive as he is. And I think people don't Mm. own their peace in it. You know, it's like, can you believe that he did that? That's the kind of conversation that comes up a lot. Like, I can't believe he talked about me to my kids. I can't believe he, you know, he gaslighted me. He did this, he did that. Right. And it's, it is believable. And what we have to do is start believing that this is the reality. Completely. And um, when we were, you know, we, you and I already discussed that a little bit later in the conversation, we're going to talk about how do you prepare yourself to arrive to your last first date? And my Mm -hmm. number one thing is accountability. Mm -hmm. It takes two people to create a relationship, to destroy a relationship or to succeed in a relationship. Right. And that is a critical first step in the healing process and the healing renewal and readiness process to become ready for a future relationship. You have to become the right person first in order to meet your right true match. And we can go into that later. But yes, there's. um, And and I will say, too, that a lot of the time, you know, as well as um, like the courage to take accountability, how like fear around facing up to our own culpability in that relationship and creating such a toxic environment. That is one huge thing that holds people back from truly being able to move forward. And then the other one is like you said, like uncertainty is terrifying, but to recognize that uncertainty is another form of limitlessness, which is um, I have that and I'm yours where, you know, I grew up in a lot of different places. I'm a third culture kid. So I am so grateful for that kind of upbringing because I've never really had to deal with the 
the fear of uncertainty in that way where it can be so paralyzing for so many people who grow up in the same small town with the same people and they marry someone they met in high school. And the thought of shaking any of that up is paralyzing. And I'm grateful that because of all the travel and also the emotional um, journeys I had to go through as a child and teenager and then immigrating to the United States by myself while my family was still in Asia, it equipped me with tools, the same tools that helped me feel a kind of audacity when I was, you know, separated from my ex-husband and starting over again. I totally so, understand yeah, that. And whatever kind of childhood or teenagehood we have, you know, whether you grew up in a small town and live in a small town, or you had an international upbringing as I did, where you were then shipped off to the States by yourself at 18. Um, there's always things in our in our life where we can use to cultivate that sense of audacity because it doesn't have to look as extroverted as my travels as a young kid. There's so many things that come into our lives that equip us for resiliency. And that in itself is ultimately the thing that gets us through, which is the mindset shift, which is you know, at every single point, whatever hardship that are, enters our periphery and our narrative, we have a choice on in how we're going to engage with it. Are we going to engage with it in service of our disempowerment or our empowerment? Am I going to uh, recycle this and refurbish this hardship toward courage, clarity, and confidence? And because ultimately we are the authors of our lives and we get to decide, am I going to live life as a victim who's constantly complaining that it's not my fault, it's someone else's to blame, someone else's to blame, someone else's to blame? Or am I going to empower myself by saying, I'm gonna take accountability of my choices in the situation. I'm going to embrace all of the challenges that I have encountered and use them to become stronger and wiser so I can make better decisions for myself in the future. Yes. <laughs> yes to all of that. <laughs> I, I always said that um, my having grown up with chaos and uncertainty mm -hmm. prepared me for anything that could happen in life. And it also gave me resilience, but that's not true for every member of my family. And so right. I think that we all, we don't all come out the same and mm -hmm. But we do, we, we can start with the same background and, and choose a different way of dealing. And so, Completely. I mean, that's why I became a coach is really right. to help people who didn't have the tools and who do get stuck and Completely. want to find their voice and want to feel more empowered. You know, how do you, how do you do that? And it's, Absolutely. it's right. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's one of the the values of a, of a partner that I look for is how they deal with crisis. How do mm. they deal with challenges? Because to me, that really makes or breaks a person's core being. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If, if a person, I mean, the human mind is so powerful and we are not a product of our challenges or experiences. We're not a product of our, of our experiences. We're a product of our choices. The choices we make in reaction to our experiences. And if we decide that, you know, the very cliche thing like glass half empty or half full, or you can be like, I will, you know, create my own glass. Like 
I will make a whole house for myself. I will learn how to blow glass and create my own thing. Like it's like beyond something as tiny as half, half empty. There's so much abundance and it begins with our choice to create it. And I think there's three different mindsets. There's the mindset of a victim. There's a mindset of a survivor. And then there's the mindset of a warrior. Very true. Um, and beautifully said. I, I love that very contemplative. <laughs> well, you know, you're making me think about, uh, about my life and about my clients and my children. And so many people just walk around saying, I was born this way. I, I have no choice. Not true. <laughs> so really, really important message that we can stay victims and we can also be the warriors of our lives and Completely. we can make a difference. And like you, you, you didn't just make, make a change in your own life. You took that and said, let me pay it forward and help other people. Thank you. And I want to create or connect the dots between abusers thrive off of a victim narrative. People True. who thrive on a victim narrative inevitably end up exploiting and abusing the compassion of other people. They start off seducing people through their victim narrative saying, woe is me, I need you to rescue, rescue me and save me. You're the only person who understands me in the entire world. And then they start blaming you and criticizing and nagging and badgering and saying everything that is wrong in my life, the reason I am depressed and sad is you. They turn their partner into their victim of their manipulative abuse. So people who thrive off of a victim narrative inevitably be become abusive, exploitive partners. That's such an important thing to mm -hmm. highlight. And I, I was a member once of a, of a dating, like a, a, a mixed singles group on Facebook mm -hmm. years ago. And somebody was talking about abuse and how it's always the abuser's fault. And, mm. and I started the conversation of like, there's two people in every relationship. It's not to blame, right. but it's to take responsibility and accountability like you mentioned earlier. And, I, and he got really mad at me. He was like, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? How could you say that? Mm -hmm. And I, I think we just, we can't just walk around saying it's all your fault. There's a reason we attract these people into our lives. And the work that you did and that other people have done is to not be attracting these people anymore because now you have a voice mm -hmm. and now you're no longer a victim and you don't you don't believe these fantastic stories that people tell you about how they feel about you and and you're the most amazing woman they've ever met mm -hmm. and then turn the script it's like right you know you become right. aware and mm -hmm. i think the awareness is always the first step as i always say that's mm -hmm. that's how you start to shift out of Completely. the mentality. Because if you think about it, like so often people stay trapped in abusive relationships because they're like, well, they would be lost without me, mm -hmm. which is the classic victim narrative of like, yeah, but I still feel bad for everything they went through as a child or the trauma they have gone through in their adult life. You know, I know they're very mean, but I'm justifying it through these excuses that they have given me. Yeah. So it's all connected. Mm -hmm. And it's and hard I, to break that. It's hard to mm -hmm. break the codependent mentality. And um, Completely. I have a family member who has been abusive and right. 
And I cut ties with him many mm -hmm. years ago. He had crossed the line too many times, but I have a sibling who has a hard time not feeling bad for him. Right. And I say to her, this is your codependency speaking. <laughs> you need to really like, this guy doesn't deserve the kindness that you're trying to give him because mm -hmm. he doesn't even appreciate it. He can't. No. And there is a profound difference between compassion and pity. Pity is what True. we feel for people who are you know, beneath us, who are victims and who are like, oh, woe is me. This happened to me and then this happened to me. Compassion is what we feel for our equals, our spiritual and emotional equals who are like, you know, I went through this awful trauma, but I learned from it and I'm going to use it in service of myself and other people. That's compassion and awe and respect and admiration. And ultimately, and I have this in my list of things to talk about when, about when attracting like your last first date, the, the things that sustain a long lasting, healthy partnership isn't pity, but it's awe and admiration. When you can truly have awe and admiration for the choices someone has made in, in the face of their adversities, that's the thing that is the best insurance policy for any thriving, successful, happy partnership. But if your codependency is built on pity, that's going to run out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you truly admire someone and respect someone, the love does not hold any strings attached. It is, you give things in order to celebrate that person. It isn't a transaction. No, no. And you don't, you don't keep track. There's no, no score being kept because nope. you are full. Both of you are full and mm -hmm. you don't have to go, well, wait a minute. I feel exhausted because I gave you so much. And you right. It's not, it's not conditional. It's unconditional. Yes, exactly. So mm -hmm. I want to really go back to a little bit of your healing process. I know you mm -hmm. moved to uh, your mom's, you watched, you were able to witness her in a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. You were able to find your voice and not only write and publish, but then speak, which is hugely healing. I'd love to know Thank what you. other steps you took to, to really heal. Cause it's, that's a big deal. This relationship um, was extremely yeah. distractive. And, and it wasn't just, thank you. And uh, much of why I was so susceptible to that relationship to begin with was because I'd gone through a series of sexual traumas and rape. And um, I, had a, I had a few pedophilic stalkers growing up. So there was that to contend with, um, basket of joys that I had to take care of, as well as um, the ongoing, you know, the degradation of auditioning as a model and an actress and constantly, uh, constantly asking for other people to judge and give me their approval, judge me and give me their approval based on my perfection. And so through all of that, of course, I was anorexic from the time I was 15 years old and because also in a world that, you know, between all of the stalkers and attempted molestation and things like that I'd gone through in my childhood, um, as well as like my parents didn't have, my, my mom and my father, whom I'm very, very close to. And we've, especially my father and I, we've, we've created an amazing relationship, but it took a lot of work and transparency and honest conversations and me setting down some boundaries. Um, while I was growing up, we, you know, I, I witnessed a very tumultuous relationship between the two of them and a tumultuous relationship with my father, where I felt like I was always 
competing against myself for his approval and his love. And I, and between that and obviously I was just suffering from perfectionism and anorexia and overexercise and controlling my food uh, portions and all of that. It felt like the one area of my life where I could exert control, where in an otherwise voiceless, agency-less, powerless world, um, where I was just competing for everyone else's approval by being perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, battled anorexia for about 15 years. So from the age of 15 to the age 30, because I moved to Portland just shy of turning 30. And that's when I was like, okay, I got to figure out all of this stuff because otherwise I'm just going to get into the same abusive um, relationship over and over again, because things like disordered eating and overexercise is self-harm and getting yourself into an abusive relationship is exactly an extension of that, that's self-harm. Um, you know, settling for conditions that you know are beneath what you deserve. And so um, I worked very hard on listening to my body and eating healthy and giving myself abundance, uh, resting, not, no longer like controlling every single hour of sleep and every single portion of meals. And I truly just worked on uh, treating my body and my brain and my heart with love and being around my mom and my dad, who are the kindest, sweetest people and witnessing their joy and abundance, witnessing my mom laughing and dancing and singing in the kitchen while she cooked and eating her food, um, eating home cooked meals, watching them like, you know, waltz in the kitchen. All of that was so critical. And then I was just writing about all of this, uh, you know, in, in the bedroom I was staying in, which was actually my baby sister's teenage bedroom. She moved out uh, she moved out of the house to go to college and I moved in at age 30 <laughs> and it was just perfect you know um I got to relive a whole I got to live a whole new childhood in a way and yeah that that was coming up for me it was yeah, almost like a reparenting yourself reparenting re myself and healing my inner child all that good stuff yeah um yeah and because I was in such a safe environment, possibly for the first time in my adulthood, like in New York, I was just bouncing around from one sublet to another with so many roommates. A, a lot of them had like really chaotic uh, demons and shadows that they were battling. So I never felt safe. You know, I wasn't exactly in a position to, to like just stop and process everything that had happened to me. I had been raped when I was 23. I hadn't really even processed that. Um, you know, I'd had a miscarriage when I was 24 that I didn't even know, know was coming. Like, the, and, but you're just racing to make it to the next day and the next audition and the next baby, babysitting gig and the next modeling photo shoot. That's what I was just in. I was constantly running. And in the process, I never even had the time and space to go through everything, much less unpack and heal. So I had all of this to contend with when I moved to my parents and I was finally in a safe space to do so. And I just started crying and writing. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and the first six, the first three months of writing, I was just crying every single day, but I instinctively knew that it was just pent up tears because even after I'd been kicked out of the barn by my ex-husband, I couch hopped for a few weeks at different 
different houses of people whom I worked for, whom I babysat and nannied for. And you can't stop to cry while you're taking care of someone else's child. Like if I ever allowed myself a moment to process my sadness and grief, it was on the treadmill at 4 a.m. in the morning before my babysitting job, or it was like on the subway between auditions. And so there was just, yeah, when, when I sat down to write and I was just crying about all of these things from, you know, infancy to age 30, I was just like, this is great. This is exactly what I should be doing. And I, and I built up also, and it was the first time I was just allowing my voice to express all the anger and pain and sorrow I had felt that had been accumulated. And I realized this is like, this was vulnerability for the first time in my life. And especially after I had been Little Miss Perfect my entire life, you know, perfection is the opposite of vulnerability. And it's another way to armor yourself up. I think there's two main ways that people armor themselves up against vulnerability or try to not feel it. One is perfectionism and the other is control. A lot of people try to control their way out of vulnerability. And perfectionism is another way where you show the world that you are completely like your Barbie or Ken and that you have everything put together. And then deep down inside, you're just like panting, trying to catch your breath. Mm-hmm. And um, which was my version of armor. Yeah. And so for the first time I was, I just let down that armor and felt everything. And I intuitively knew as well that sitting inside vulnerability, it's a muscle that you develop. And so naturally after a first few months of never, like I, I wasn't able to write without crying. Hmm. And then after a while, I just built up my muscle for vulnerability. And then it just became a much more efficient and less exhausting process to write. (laughs) And it was perfect preparation for the speaking gigs I would be giving five years down the road. Uh, A lot of people will ask me, like, how do you tell your story on these podcasts or speaking engagements? Like, how are you not devastated at all times? And I said, well, because now I know how to do this as an art form and as a craft and not like a therapy session, because that's the critical difference where True, uh, excellent memoir writing is not therapy. It's your 14th draft. Your first draft is therapy and it's for yourself. You're not supposed to share it with anyone else. And then you mine it and mine it and mine it so it doesn't seem so raw and angry or sad or pitiful. And you mine it for the golden narrative that lifts up through the wreckage. And you can say, here's the beauty that I found through the brutality of life, this is what can hopefully be in service of someone else. Like there's a lot of people who preemptively share their narrative where, you know, whether it's in a book or now everyone has a blog for heaven's sake. And just because you have access to a blog doesn't mean you're a writer because there's a very, very, there's a huge difference between self-obsession and introspection. Quality writing is about introspection in service of someone else's story. Terrible writing is about self-obsessed, woe is me, this is my victim narrative, everyone and their mother headed against me, mm-hmm. you know? And so the same thing can be said about like when you try to go step out into the world and you do your keynotes or you step out into the world to re-engage with the dating atmosphere. 
if you're still in your victim narrative, you're never going to be successful, whether yeah. it's in the arena of love or the arena of a professional environment. Yep. I talk a lot about trauma bonding and mm -hmm. how in the dating world, so many people will connect on their wounds instead oh of gosh. connecting on like, this is who I am today. This is and what I've done to get here. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are my passions and these are my goals. And this is what, this is what makes me tick and what makes you tick. It's like, we, we just have it backwards. And yeah. I, I, um, I remember many years ago, what you said really rings true about how people speak about their lives. Mm -hmm. There was a woman who wrote The Blessing of a Broken Heart. Um, she had mm -hmm. lost a child in Israel during uh, a terrorist act. It was a, it was a terrible, mm -hmm. terrible crisis. And she wrote it in such a way that was obvious that to me that she had done healing and that she was right. really writing the way that you talk about the introspection. There was no victim mentality in that at all. And then I heard another woman speak and she had lost children in a fire. I mean, it was equally terribly tragic, tragic, but it was all, I'm working through my stuff here on the stage. Right. And I was so turned off. I wanted to run out of that room. I, I just, and Brene Brown talks about this, you know, that how we should never be sharing our stories as a way to work through them the way mm -hmm. that we can really hear a story and we can we can uh, learn from it is will you feel the difference when somebody has done the work and has worked through it and is ready to now share in a way right. that can be received and mm -hmm. also learned from because it's shared in such a beautiful way that's really the goal. And I don't think a lot of people know how to do that, both in writing and in speaking. It's, um, there's a fine line that a lot of people just don't understand. I mean, it's a craft like anything else. Just because we're all taught the alphabet doesn't mean we're authors. It's true. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yes. Or speakers. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's very true. And I think, you know, when I first started writing, I was writing way too much about my personal life and working through mm -hmm. it. And I actually took down a lot of my writing and really changed the focus of how I wrote and how I speak. Um, so you're in this healthy, amazing relationship. You got on this <laughs> dating app and met this guy. And um, if you can share a little bit about, I mean, it's a big leap to go from where you were to where you are. What are some of the lessons that you've learned through this relationship that you have now? Thank you. Um, well, I think it's a lot needs to be said about the work we do in preparation of becoming the right person to meet your right person. And that's critical to then having a healthy, joyful, seemingly effortless relationship. It's effortless because you've done so much work leading up to meeting your person, you know? Um, and then of course there's like work you do to, through the relationship, but it shouldn't feel difficult if you've done the work leading up to it. And so, like I mentioned before, my number one thing is accountability and to be accountable for your own healing, growth, readiness, and renewal before you re-enter the dating world, because every relationship requires two people to destroy, succeed, and create. Uh, or create, and no breakup is caused by one person alone. And so to take inventory of where we cause pain and the pain points we gathered along the way, 
and to heal those trust issues, those traumas, and take care of all that you can on your own prior to meeting your person. And to discover the invaluable wisdom that you will need to prepare for and create, co-create a successful, joyful, seamless partnership with the right person when the time is right. And um, because, you know, when people say like the law of attraction, well, that's how you become magnetic is the gravitational pull between the two, your, you and your right person is readiness and to meet at the right time of growth and wisdom and joy and self-esteem, which is my second thing. Use the time, the solo time of your, on your journey between you know, the devastating heartbreak or divorce and then the years you take off to just be on your own. Use that solo time to develop a solid self-esteem that is not contingent or reliant upon the approval, presence, or praise of someone else so that you are not addicted to someone else or susceptible to being destroyed by someone else, you know, where you are in power of yourself and you're not about to put someone else on a pedestal and give them all power and agency over who you are, your identity and your value, because that is critical. Having a solid self-esteem is also very critical in not only being a healthy person, entering a healthy relationship, but also to realize that every long lasting, long-term relationship, there will be different stages and seasons where your partner will need you to hold steady while they are going through something in their inner world. And we will take turns doing that. And it's so critical to gain and create a solid self-esteem because it helps you then to not personalize your partner's every word, action, and season. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Where there's always going to be stages in a long-term relationship where one partner will need the other one to stay inside courage and love while they are floundering in something that has you know, triggered them or caused them to fear and go into a pain point. And so having a solid self-esteem allows you to not personalize your partner as their healing a pain point or, or helping them heal a pain point so that your partnership can constantly thrive and grow together. Um, you know, it's, just, it's having a solid self-esteem is, will equip you for things like, you know, one partner losing their job or going through a, a period of purposelessness or a period of depression, or even like the initial fears that come up when building a new relationship. Right. Yeah, the initial fears around trust and certainty and commitment, having a solid self-esteem grounds us through that entire thing. It keeps us anchored and moving forward. And that's, it's so essential to build that on your own before you re-enter the dating world. Number three is joy. Learn how to cultivate true, lasting, authentic, sustain, sustainable joy that is independent to anyone or anything joy that is unconditional um, and because that's ultimately being able to be someone who can cultivate sincere joy in your own personal company that will sustain the health and ease of a partnership better than anything else honestly it means like you will never fight you will just talk things out it means that you will be able to repair and renew from like minor tensions it won't become this like awful conflict 
joy helps in every single facet of a healthy partnership. It, it's why like, you know, seamless effortless partnerships are only seamless and effortless because so much work has been done on those two people going in. It's the same thing as when you hear an incredible musician sing or play, or you see a portrait done that just seems like, oh my gosh, it, like how did they do that? Or, or, or an amazing actor, it just seems effortless, but the more effortless something appears, the more work and labor and time and intentionality has gone into perfecting that craft. And the same goes for our readiness and um, our readiness and our quality uh, of partner, but being the kind of partner we want to be and want to show up as. So number four is awe and admiration. Become a person you sincerely admire, respect, and can trust because that's what sustains lasting attraction, not physical chemistry, not attachment disorders or codependency, uh, not pity, you know, having pity for each other's wounds and victim narratives that does not sustain lasting, healthy, joyful relationships. The thing that sustains lasting attraction is genuine, sincere, awe, admiration, respect, and pride in the person you're with. And so to attract that kind of person, you have to become that kind of person. Because that also means that if you become that quality and caliber of person, you're not gonna settle for riffraff because you're not gonna be compelled and attracted by wounds. Mm -hmm. You're gonna be like, okay, you need to do some more work on yourself, but I'm not gonna engage in this. I'm not mm -hmm. here to save you. I'm not interested in that. It's the ego that wants to save people. But if you've, become a, if you've taken the time to grow into someone who can sincerely admire yourself, you're no longer attached to the ego rush of saving other people. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Number five is emotional intelligence and the ability to communicate effectively. This is so critical. I mean, my partner and I, he's just so intelligent and he has done such a tremendous amount of work to gain the tools to communicate effectively. And I do this professionally. And so we just met and we hit the pavement running. And everything has just been so remarkably easy, even when it comes to like, you know, unpacking a bit of tension that has arisen. And when you have the tools of language and you've taken the time to have a solid self-esteem and a calm brain, you're not going to just get, even if you inadvertently step into a pain point from your partner's past, it's not going to just turn into this chaotic environment, you're going to be like, oh, I'm sorry. I feel like I inadvertently triggered a pain point. Let's just talk about that. Can you please clarify what you meant in that moment? That's literally how he and I engage. It's mm. so easy if you do the work to get to that place of effortless communication. And having that emotional intelligence and ability to communicate means that all of your deep vulnerable conversations will be done correctly and efficiently and calmly and respectfully with intelligence and candor and courage and self-accountability and the mutual tenderness and respect that sustains 
not just the repair that comes that ne that needs to happen after attention has been resolved, but also like just being able to bounce back from it and be like, okay, we got that done in half an hour, as opposed to letting this linger and fester and then becoming something that sabotages us. I feel like so many couples, they just misread everything as like an invitation for new trauma to inflict on each other. It's like, does it really have to be that way? Or could we just learn communication tools so that it doesn't have to resort to becoming this huge war every time? Um, and that, I mean, it really is, your life becomes so much easier when you meet someone who is intelligent, calm, and has those that toolkit. Yeah. You know, it's it really is, a, I mean, for me, it's a non-negotiable. And I, I identified all of these things prior to meeting my partner. And so when I met him, it was more like I recognized him. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, he has exactly all of the qualities that I've been speaking into existence. And he felt that same recognition with me of like, well, great. This is exactly, we should be fine. And we <laughs> have certainty. That recognition of, of each other gave us so much. And because we are older, I'm 38, he's 41. We came into this with profound gratitude for the fortune of having met each other. And that gratitude and humility, as well as the, the, the wisdom of years letting us know like, wow, we really, really lucked out finding each other after wanting to meet each other for such a long time. Mm -hmm. that, grad, that sincere respect and gratitude for the fortune of finding each other and being loved by each other that has also sustained our ability to constantly be respectful with, with, with one another, even when we've had to unpack something tense. And I believe like that was one of my critical lessons that I've learned in this relationship is I think like the thought of ever raising my voice toward him is unfathomable to me because I have so much respect for him. And I think couples who argue, there is an element of disrespect there. Mm -hmm. Because if you truly respect someone's brain and heart, and like the idea of inflicting wounds on him is I would literally rather die than mistreat him. Mm. And so again, it goes back to awe and admiration. When you become someone whom you genuinely admire and respect, you're not going to resort to violent tactics or things like curse words or saying mean things out of self-respect and integrity. And the same way when you've met someone and attracted someone whom you genuinely admire and respect, you would never treat them with such bad behavior, you know? Yeah. And it starts yeah. with you because it starts when you're, with us. right. You're mm -hmm. treating yourself with respect and you're treating Completely. yourself with all of these beautiful intentions mm -hmm. I always say that gratitude sustains love as much as love sustains gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude first, actually. Mm -hmm. And every day I'm so profoundly grateful for the honor and privilege of loving my partner and being yeah. loved by him. But even like the second part of being loved by him, I would love him independent of me. Mm -hmm. That's like, I learned that one early on in our relationship where I, I realized I was in love for the first time real authentic adult mature love because I realized even if he wasn't my partner I would be in love with him mm. because it's not based on the nice things and the sweet things he does and says to me 
he does for me and says to me, it's about my genuine respect and admiration for who he is. Yeah. And that's the kind of person you want to be with because nothing sustains the respect and integrity of a relationship more than that. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, it's, so it's not transactional, like we said before. Oh gosh, no. Yeah. And, uh, and it's unconditional, it's yeah. sincere, unconditional love and respect. And, um, and when you're with that kind of person, that means you're able to enter and complete your final stage of healing because there's only so much healing we can do on our own. And then the final healing of our, of the pain points we've brought in, whether it's from our childhood or adulthood and adult relationships, those, those heal, that healing of those pain points occur in the, in the safe, loving embrace and presence of your right, true match of your right, true equal match, the person who is your emotional and spiritual, intellectual and creative equal. Yeah. And after you've done that work, like that's the first year, I mean, or, or, you know, part of your first year, or maybe it's two years, depends on mm, your ability to communicate, I think. I think that foundational work is critical, of course, and that's mm -hmm. what's foundational. <laughs> I mean, but, and it depends on the couple of like how quickly you get through it. We kind of went through an accelerated growth because <laughs> <Sounds like it. laughs> we just, yeah, it just all kind of, I think we took care of it in like the first 10 months. And now we're just like, the analogy I have is like, we built a Boeing 747 from scratch using our bare hands and now it's in the air and we're just soaring. It's awesome. Uh, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's just so great. Um, and it's, and, and the thing is like, even when we were in the initial stages of like inadvertently triggering each other's pain points and fears about around love and trust, it was still conducted with so much joy and respect and candor and humor. You know, and that was a choice we made. Like at no point in our relationship have we ever not experienced joy. And that I feel like that's been one of my biggest takeaways and the gifts of this beautiful relationship, which I, we both have certainty and hope that it'll be our lifetime relationship, which is when you're with the right, right person, it's just so easy and there's so much joy. There was a playfulness in our love that I didn't think I had never experienced before. And even when you're unpacking like big trauma, you can do it playfully and with integrity and efficiency and a seamless you know, partnership. Just mm -hmm. like we're a seamless team with whatever we, we take on, whether it's like entertaining friends and family or unpacking something that needs to be unpacked and resolved and released. Beautiful. I, I've, had, I've watched my clients go through this mm -hmm. where they're in the first healthy relationship that they've ever right. been in. And they have learned to share more of the trauma as the relationship goes on. Like, here's, here's how I'm feeling and I just need to share this with you. And this is what I need from mm -hmm. you when I share this, this would really help me being able to be that vulnerable and to say, this is, this is going on for me. The story I'm making up is yes. whatever. And, uh, you know, it's just so important. It, you, what, what you were just saying now reminded me of, I was watching Notting Hill again mm -hmm. on the airplane on the way home. <laughs> I fell asleep at the end, but, but the part that I loved from that movie, and it really stood out for me was the brownie part. Do you know about that? 
brownie yes right? oh my gosh yeah who gets the brownie who gets so the for, brownie right if anybody doesn't know this became a running joke for me and my closest friend because we had both been through a lot of trauma and we like would the, just the say, trauma wars yeah I was like oh you get the brownie today and we used to joke about it but yeah. you know my husband couldn't couldn't joke about the trauma that we went through and mm. I found humor to really help me to get through some of the hardest stuff. You know, it's right. like you you, ha you have to be able to balance both to mm -hmm. be able to know when to get serious, but also when to be light about it and to, you know, to get the brownie because <laughs> we all want Absolutely. that brownie. Yeah. So, so for anybody who doesn't know, the brownie went to the person who suffered the most and had the worst is the hardest story. And, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, but, and everybody had gone through something, you know, and Absolutely. so it's like, we all, we all need, we all deserve the brownie, but <laughs> we need to be able to, to, you know, laugh about it. Yeah. And well, yeah, in the same yeah. way that like everyone goes through trauma and then our recovery, we can choose, is it going to be arduous or playful and efficient mm -hmm. in the same way, like successful relationships, aren't the result of ignoring vulnerable conversations. It's that these two people have made a choice that instead of doing everything in an arduous, laborious manner, they're just going to be playful and efficient about it. Yeah. And, they're going, and we're going to use every one of those vulnerable conversations as another exciting invitation and opportunity to grow closer. Yeah. Yeah. And it does it's make gift. you grow closer. It is a mm -hmm. gift. I mean, my daughter and I were arguing about money, for example, and we see money differently. And mm -hmm. I told her that she helped me to look at my money story. And even though I think I'm pretty good with, with how I see money, it's mm -hmm. still, there's always room for growth. And right. I appreciated her helping me see that. And mm -hmm. I think that if we can take a step back and put our ego aside yeah. And really hear the lessons that we need to hear in order mm -hmm. to complete our healing and to keep growing. Uh, once we shut ourselves down to feedback, you know, and especially feedback giving in a love, given in a loving way, not all feedback right. is given in a loving way. Some is meant to destroy you, but mm -hmm. feedback that's given from someone who loves you is feedback that can really help us grow. And um, so all of these points are just such important components. I mean, these are all what I what I teach and coach on um, because I had to learn all of these things for myself right. as well in my healing. And I think that you know, there was, um, I forgot the author, I think it was Mark Hackett or something yeah. like that. He wrote uh, Permission to Feel. Mm. I heard him on Brene Brown's podcast. and um, But I love that idea of permission to feel because mm -hmm. so often we grow up the way you did where the feelings were not dealt with and they were, mm -hmm. they were suppressed and you had the armor up and you just kept going, going, going. And then you were able to take the time to really work through the emotions. And I, right. I think that's Thank such you. crucial work. Yeah. And I gave myself a stern and loving deadline. I was like, I am not going to late like wallow yes. in pain because then I would be handicapping myself. Yeah. And holding myself back from having a beautiful, love-filled, joyful life. And um, yeah, that's what, I mean, I gave myself a year to write, I am yours. Because if the, if the earth can orbit the sun in one year, <laughs> I can get through my healing too. And of course, like I'm being, you know, a, a bit 
um, just like uh, flippant about it because like healing goes on for a long time, but like the big laborious stuff, it's really important to know the difference between introspection and indulgence because indulgence then is about ego and introspection yeah. is in service and humility of oneself. And then hopefully to get yourself to the other side to be of service to other people who have gone through similar dark years. And um, all of that time I took those five years to be by myself, it was really about just dismantling my ego and becoming as soft and tender and loving and steady as possible so that I, I'm not reactive and response, I'm not reactive in any of my relationships. And I just really made sure to take care of all of that. Because I remember like, when I was younger and anorexic and therefore constantly hangry, I used to be so <laughs> reactive because in, you know, in addition to the anorexia and the, the pain and fear of that, I was also struggling with so many unresolved traumas that it made me very reactive because I was constantly terrified yeah. and therefore clingy and clingy about, well, what does this person mean? And, you know, what's going on in this situation and all of that. And, I was like, you know, I'm not the kind of person who I would want to date. So why should I go out there? It's like, it, I feel like it's almost like socially unethical to be <laughs> like in a relationship if you're not totally ready for one or not someone you can be proud of, you know, and constantly blaming your wounds on someone else. Like it's just, there's so much pain and chaos in the world. Don't add to it through relationships too, yeah. right? And yeah. Um, so I think all of those years that we spend on our own is a, are about healing and dismantling the ego. Yeah, and hopefully yeah. people spend those years doing that because a Completely. lot of them just don't. And I, I think that, I love that socially unethical. I, <laughs> That's oh my gosh. a great term. I, I think that the other part that I wanna just highlight is that you do the healing, but then you are completing the healing in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I want people not to just think they have to stay in that state of constant, I need to heal a little bit more and a little mm -hmm. bit more. And it's like, it's like, I, ha I can't launch my, my business until I've got six more degrees. And, you know, mm -hmm. so oh it's that gosh. failure to move forward we can get paralyzed if we yeah. wait too long. And I know that you can intellectualize how to, how to communicate effectively and how to do right. all those things. But unless you're practicing those skills, you won't really improve. Exactly. And like, it's, again, it all comes back to the mindset. And at, with everything in life, we can choose, am I going to engage with this in an arduous manner? Or am I going to engage with it playfully? Yeah. We can engage with love in an arduous manner and it inevitably becomes something that destroys two people, that nearly destroys two people, plus any like kid or children you bring into it, plus the families that are in the widespread ricochet of those bullets. Or you can make the choice that I'm going to engage in love in a playful manner. And then everything in life becomes all the more beautiful. I love that. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. I, I think that um, you just exude so much grace and wisdom and humility and resilience. And I have so enjoyed this conversation, Rima. <laughs> thank you so much, Sandy. As of high, this is wonderful. Thank you. Let everybody know how they can find you in your work. 
I'm easiest to be found um, on Instagram. And then of course, if you Google my name or the book title, I am yours, there's my website. And then also I am yours can be purchased through Amazon or Powell's or Barnes and Nobles or any of your favorite bookstores or wherever you get them. I've also had the privilege and honor of speaking at many podcasts like your own and then Cheryl Strait's Your Sugar. So just Google my name and I am easily found. Right. So on Instagram, you're Remus Amon. Mm-hmm. Just, just at Remus Amon. Okay. Yep. Fantastic. And that's, I am so fortunate to, I love Instagram because it's like direct people and I receive a lot of DMs and, you know, direct messages from people saying, oh, I, I discovered you through this podcast or I discovered your book or I discovered this essay. And then I went down the rabbit hole and I read your work. And then I have the honor of being the recipient of people's personal stories and help being able to help them find their tools to move forward. And so please do reach out. I love it so much. I see it as an enormous uh, privilege to be in service of your story. So um, yeah, Beautiful. that's why we're here to help each other love and be loved. I could not agree more. <laughs> that's what this <laughs> podcast is all about. So thank, thank you, you again. And I, I just, you have so much to offer and this you're just incredibly articulate as well. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. If you love our show, please rate, review us, subscribe, share with a friend. Uh, it always helps us. And as always, here's to your last first date. Bye. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. Fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.